Hi, this is Yonit. This episode was recorded before the terror attack in Tel Aviv on Thursday night. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families of the dead and the wounded, and we are hoping for quiet days and better news. Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. I'm all sort of hesitating a little bit to ask how you are because <laughs> I've been following the news and I have a feeling that this is not wholly welcome development. Look, I, I think we can talk about the fate of the country and the political quagmire and all that, but can I talk about myself for a minute? I, Just, I think you, you know, TV people are so self-involved. <laughs> Go on. I'm just, I think I deserve... I don't know, either, you know, a mention in the Guinness Book of World Records for being like the most election I broadcast anchored by one woman in a span of a 20 year career. I think I deserve, I deserve, I deserve a plaque or something like of an award I just invented. I think I'd be very happy for a street to be named after you. <laughs> it would have to, it would have to be a street that sort of maybe, you know, like a circular a street. Highway. Where you keep... Can it be the Unit Levy Highway? <laughs> highway. But it should be one of those circular routes where you just keep coming back <laughs> again and again and again, because it is a kind of Groundhog Day thing for you and these mm-hmm. elections. And we are going to find okay. ourselves again, I fear, talking about, you know, what, what your little tricks are to get through a 15-hour broadcast, little nuts and snacks. We're going to be having that. Co- I mean, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. It's not certain. Nope. We're, going to, we're going to take a deep dive into all of this, obviously, with our special and very well-placed guest this week about all this. But it's funny because it's obviously a huge thing, this political development. Uh, you're going to tell us all about it. But I, I too did think, oh my God, if there's an election, <laughs> I know what that's going to mean for your need. So yes, a very local reaction to that. But a little bit, it, a little bit. It is sort of crazy what's happened. I, I think so. Look, I mean, it's amazing. We just think of what you and I have been talking about in the past couple of weeks, right? It was, we were focused on Russia and Ukraine. If we did talk about Israel, it was from the efforts of the mediation efforts by this prime minister. We were talking about a new wave of terror that is maybe coming uh, to Israel now. And look what happened. Like in one day, the coalition is beginning to unravel. Um, the story that broke, of course, is that the uh, coalition whip, uh, Edith Silman, a member of Yamina, of the prime minister's party, decided to leave the coalition, thus leaving him with no uh, actual majority, which means he can limp on. This coalition, the Bennett-Lapid government, has only just begun. They're shy of 10 months. Um, they can limp on, but it doesn't look it doesn't look great. It looks like it's the beginning of the end. I did slightly worry that we had somehow played a small role in this, just to talk about being self-involved. Uh, do you remember we both bragged on the podcast how neither of us had got COVID and then punked, <laughs> as my late mother would have said. We had sort of jinxed it because we, we then got COVID and then I got COVID. Well, last week we had as our guest the former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who was lavishing praise on Naftali Bennett for his competence and particularly his ability on the world stage and and using that as a as a way of slamming the former prime minister Bibi Netanyahu and then and um, within a few days punked Bennett's uh, majority has evaporated and he appears to be on his way out or maybe not or limping on or whatever but it does seem as if Barack's praise may have been a kind of political curse. I mean, it it does strike me that this was a kind of classic political error by Naftali Mm -hmm. Bennett, which is 
As you say, he was playing this role on the world stage now as a mediator shuttling between uh, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky on the phone to them and talking to other world leaders and getting some credit for it, some plaudits for it, even some overheated talk of, you know, very premature talk of a Nobel Peace Prize if he got the deal. But he forgot while he was, you know, strutting on the world stage, he forgot to take care of business back home. And that is something you have to do no matter how big a figure you are. You do have to mm-hmm. remember, and this wasn't just somebody in his coalition uh, that he you know, couldn't possibly have known about. This is somebody in his own tiny little party, tiny faction, really. What is it? Six seats he had in the coalition, uh, in, in, you know, in the Knesset. Five he, today. <laughs> five, five now. And he just wasn't alert to that danger. And, yep. uh, and, and you know, now he's in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You think of the fact that he was so busy being this statesman, right, and proving that he can do what Netanyahu did, but he forgot to do what Netanyahu's first rule in his rule book is, politics at home is more important, always protect your base. And and he, and he let that uh, slip. And it, it really is amazing because all the signs were there. People were warning him about this. And he, I think, I don't know what it is, but he, he this is a complete him missing the signs that were there. So there's a possibility that you are going to have to face yet another election night marathon. But, you know, explain why. What what exactly has happened here? So what happened is that on the early uh, hours of Wednesday morning this week, um, Amit Segal, who we'll talk to in a minute, broke the story, our, our uh, political affairs analyst, broke the story that the coalition whip and a member of the prime minister's own party, Yamina, the a member of Knesset, Idit Silman, has decided to leave the coalition. And by doing so, what happened was that the very small majority that the coalition had, which was 61, small but enough, now turned into 60, which means that the Bennett-Lapid government doesn't have a majority. Um, I, I do need to say what her excuse or official excuse was. She was uh, turning against the member of uh, Knesset from the head of the Meretz party, the uh, uh, left uh, on the left of the Israeli uh, map. And she said that he shouldn't have, it was the whole issue of chametz. Now, again, in hindsight, this looks like an uh, alibi for leaving the government, but the excuse was that he wrote a letter just informing uh, administrators in hospitals of a Supreme Court ruling that says that hospitals can't prevent people from bringing in chametz in Passover. We should explain she she, some of our listeners will the- not be completely au fait with what chametz <laughs> is, because this is getting so arcane. But of course, during the fo- feast of pa- festival of Passover, Bread is meant to be unleavened, as in matzah, and anything that is kind of actual bread or bread-related is called chametz, and it's meant to be banned from your home and even from, uh, under the, in these rules, you know, some people would think from a hospital. And that was what the ruling of health minister said. You can't have guards going through people's bags, <laughs> checking not for weapons, but for little crumbs of a kind of muffin, which or, you know, or a bread, right. because that would be breaking the kind of religious law. And why am I saying it's an excuse? It wasn't even the decision of the Minister of Health. He was just reminding the the, uh, administrators of the hospitals of a decision that a Supreme Court has already made a year uh, earlier. So this is what she decided to, uh, uh, you know, be so angry about that led to her leaving the coalition. I think there are other things at play here in the Sidman issue. I think more than anything, there was just 
huge pressure on her from the Israeli right from the minute that she decided to enter this government, and specifically the minute the wave of terror started in Israel. The fact that she's sitting in a in a government with an Islamist party that just I think was too much for her to bear in the uh, effect of of the pressure that was that was put on because her. Because she is herself from a religious Zionist community, and you can imagine neighbors coming up to her on sort of Friday night saying, "What on earth are you doing sitting with those?" terrible people. Mm-hmm. And not you don't need to imagine because you would see her every time she left the house, people would uh, uh, protest against her, would call her a traitor, you know, the worst of things. And I assume that after 10 months of this, she she just, you know, that she she had enough. Well, we have got somebody to tell us all about it and um why don't you introduce our very special guest? I take pleasure in presenting our next guest. Amit Segal is a friend and a colleague, and he's the lead political analyst for Channel 12. He writes a weekly column for Yediot Achonot newspaper. He's the author of a best-selling book, The Story of Israeli Politics, which is due to come out in English later this year. He's also the journalist who broke the Edith Silman story. Amit, we're so glad you could join us today. Uh, usually in Israel, with um, such compliments, the next sentence is, may he rest in peace. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you very much anyway. Still living and uh, for many healthy years. Um, yes, what I'm trying to say is that you have to suffer, put up with me every day of the week. Jonathan just has to put up with me one day of the week. So he's the lucky guy. Yeah, in this conversation, I know. Just Got before it. we set up the whole thing. And he lives in London. <laughs> so and lucky yes. in that way too. And he has a bigger library it's than both luck. of us. <laughs> So I actually want to begin by asking a little bit about behind the scenes, right? Because you have this scoop uh, Mm -hmm. for a few hours, I think from Tuesday evening, you Mm -hmm. know that basically the coalition is unraveling Mm -hmm. uh, and that Bennett is soon to not have a majority. And you finally break the story at a quarter to 7 a.m. on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about you know, how, how Prime Minister Bennett learned of this? Well, actually, it's like Schrodinger's cat. I, I was afraid of, you know, breaking it out because I thought that if I broadcast about negotiations, it will kill them and then people will think it was fake news. And on the other hand, I, I feared that the sum of all fears that someone else will actually take the story from me. So it was a hectic night, um, usually as a Jerusalemite and a... a good Jewish boy, I go to sleep before midnight, but I didn't sleep that night. My mother was quite proud. She's a nurse, so she got used to it. Um, But um, it's quite amazing that Prime Minister Bennett didn't have a clue. You know, during the whole night, the situation was that Silman is speaking to Bennett's worst enemy. She's with Netanyahu and his allies. She's making meetings, she texts them, etc., etc., and nothing, I, I mean, the, N- Bennett's intelligence actually was like the, the Ukrainian intelligence pri- prior to the Russian invasion. They, they, they got all the details, but they didn't have the, the greater picture. The, the concept was that mm-hmm. it cannot happen. Maybe because they thought Silman is very happy with her job as the, you know, as the uh, chief whip. Um, maybe they thought that she's very moderate when it comes to religious things. So when she speaks about her problems with Hametz in Passover, in hospitals, mm-hmm. it's merely an excuse for something, maybe to get more publicity. But but th- they they couldn't believe their eyes. Well, specifically, Bennett uh, was awakened by his um, top uh, policy advisor, Shimrit Meir. She was in New York. It was quite before, a bit before midnight, and she got the push notifications in, in not in New York, in Washington, 
calling him in Ra'anana to say that something happened in Jerusalem. That's the thing. <laughs> you really don't want to be that aide making that call. Not you really. really don't. Not really. really don't. In your reporting, I mean, is that it's not as if Bennett wasn't warned. I mean, the people were warning him. I think Gidon Saab, ministerial colleague in the coalition, was saying, look, you need to keep an eye on this person. Mm-hmm. She's wavering. She's no longer loyal to you or to the coalition. She is in conversation mm-hmm. with the other side, ultimately at the head of that yep. block, Netanyahu. H- how does somebody who is a politician who wily enough to get to become prime minister of his country not actually listen to a direct warning like that from a colleague? Because Bennett uh, is a, a, a different politician. I mean, there are two problems. First is that many prime ministers in Israel suffered from the lack of ability to do both, you know, the international business of, you know, a meeting with Putin in the Kremlin and then traveling to Berlin and talking to Biden and congratulating Modi from India, etc. And the, the know-how of talking to the, you know, to the grassroots activists from Netanya about the job that his wife didn't get in the religious authority there. So Bibi knew how to do that. Netan- uh, Sharon knew how to do that. Many pe- people knew. Bennett, I, I think it's, it's lack of experience. Plus, this is the sin and the punishment. Bennett was not elected to become a prime minister. He was nominated. He was the first prime minister to get elected as a prime minister without having the votes. He, 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 he is not very good with, with doing politics in the way we, we, we were used to, de- to, to describe it. He's very good in playing poker with six to seven other players in the room. But, but if you look at his history, he had suffered many defections in the past. It's not the first time it's, it, it has happened to him over the last year. And it's not the last, in my opinion. It's not the last. So we're, as we're last. sitting here talking, you think that the, the option that we're likely to see is that more, or at least one more, is going to leave and then we're going to, to elections? That is basically, if you have to put all your money on mm-hmm. one option, that is what we're going to see. Let, let, let's put it differently. First of all, Yamina, Bennett's party, is part of history. I mean, it will be a trivia question in who wants to be a millionaire in, in 10 years from now. And, and one of the, the, the most difficult questions, who was the party that had only six seats? And be, 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 because... Only the Amit Segal of 10 years exactly, from now. Will exactly. Exactly. I'll need a friend on the phone. <laughs> um, but but the, the, the problem is that they have no political future. So mm-hmm. I know if you are on the Titanic and you have intelligence or information that it doesn't have enough uh, boats, or that, that an, an, an iceberg is, is, is coming. So it's one thing, you can, you can hope that something good will happen, that you know, it will not happen. But when it happened, when you, when you, when you already have heard the, the, the iceberg hitting the ship, it's quite natural that every Knesset member will seek a boat. And that's what's happening now. So, so they can jump now or maybe after they pack their belongings or after they, they, they're done hoping for the Titanic to ex- actually survive it. But they're doomed and the party is doomed. So it can happen 24 hours. It can happen in one month or six months the most. I mean, uh, it's like a, a plague that will, will come to I'm imagining uh, the foreign news desks of the world's major news organizations, not just my own, but, you know, the New York Times or the BBC, on the phone to their 
Jerusalem correspondent telling them about this amazing story that uh, Amit Segal has broken and saying, okay, how do we get this uh, into the paper? And the first thing the foreign editor would say to them is, just tell me if Bibi is coming back. Is Netanyahu coming back? <laughs> then I, I'll put that on page one or page three. Otherwise, you know, call me, you know, hold fire, call me when you know about Netanyahu. That, I think, would be the sort of bottom line yep. interest most would have. So just walk us through the different scenarios that end up with Netanyahu back in the prime minister's chair. Well, I think we've already learned over the last three years that um, stalemate is an option. I mean, the fact that Bennett loses doesn't necessarily mean that Netanyahu is winning uh, or that Netanyahu is, is back in, 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 in Balfour Street in the prime minister's residence. Um, Netanyahu has the ability to hit badly the, the um, Bennett's government but it doesn't mean that he has enough votes to form a coalition. And Netanyahu failed to form a coalition even two years before Bennett actually formed his, his a coalition of change, as, 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 as people used to call it in Israel. So there are two options for Netanyahu to have a comeback. First is through the, the ballots, to have 61 votes. Problem is that over the last three years, there have been four elections and 200-ish polls, and none of them gave Netanyahu's block 61 seats. Actually, now he got 56, 57, 58, not enough. Two, I mean, two, three, five seats short of an outright majority. This is one option. So maybe he'll have a majority, but it's risky. The other option is to form a coalition in this Knesset, building on the fact that 40 Knesset members do not want... To, to, to resignate. They, do, they want to survive. So Netanyahu got 54 now. He needs seven more seats, seven more votes. It's very hard, but it's even harder to imagine that people will prefer committing a political suicide rather than joining Netanyahu's cabinet. So I think if it comes to the edge, to the edgy edge of new <laughs> elections, something can happen. I would give it 20, 30%. And, and that's something. Can that also be the edge of the edge, as you say? Somehow in this crazy political atmosphere, Benny Gantz becoming prime minister. Because there will be enough people who, mm -hmm. th they'll get the 61, and mm -hmm. then he'll say to Netanyahu, you know what, I'll be prime minister first, and in some sort of rotation, you can be prime minister later. Is that an option? Is that a viable option? Mm, too early to call. Uh, I wouldn't mm -hmm. rely on that because Benny Gantz is the new Naftali Bennett. Now, in these days <laughs> in Israel, no one seeks votes. People seek the positioning. Mm -hmm. Votes are I'm mean, old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bibi got 30 seats and he's not the prime minister. Lapid got 17 and he's far from being a prime minister. Bennett with six and Gantz with eight are the, I mean, are, are the people in the game. So Gantz wants to, to be the new Bennett in the sense that no one will be able to form a coalition without him, and then he will, mm -hmm. he'll be able to force himself as the prime minister. But I'm, not, I, I'm quite sure he will not be able to be prime minister in a, to be the, the prime minister of Netanyahu's government. I mean, to <laughs> have his mere eight seats adding to, to Netanyahu's 54 or 53. So he'll prefer to do that after an election, even mm -hmm. if Netanyahu gets 56 uh, votes-ish and the other side 56 and Gantz's eight are the most expensive commodity in town. I, the question I was going to ask 
a, a year ago, I would never have asked it. It would have seemed ridiculous. But because of everything that's happened in between, I'm going to dare ask it. You told us that Netanyahu falls short by 54 because of, and the reason is there are those extra six seats of, or in mm-hmm. the opposition that he can't count on. And I'm thinking of the joint list, the mainly Arab party, the joint list. Yeah. They're not uh-huh. in the in the government, but they're nor are they in the opposition yep. in the sense of in the Netanyahu camp, that block, obviously. Is it Im- absolutely impossible to imagine Naftali Bennett with his numbers now depleted down to 60, somehow saying to the joint list, mainly Arab party, you come over and join us, not as this sort of tacit partner, silent partner, abstaining, whatever, but actually join the government and the reason why I say it's not ridiculous anymore, whereas it once would have been, is there is an Arab party in the Bennett coalition in the form of the Islamist party. Is there any reason why the joint list is more unacceptable to Bennett and his mm-hmm. right-wing partners, Gidon Sa and the others we've mentioned, than having uh, the Islamist party in there? Could that be the way out of this for Naftali Bennett, that he actually increases his numbers by winning over what is currently an opposition party? Well, we know that necessity uh, create the ideology. <laughs> um, uh, Bennett wouldn't have dreamt of joining forces with Meretz and Ram, the leftist and the, the non-Zionist Arab party, but uh, parties, but, but he did it. So uh, I mm-hmm. think the question is, is valid, but the problem is the blanket is too short. The joint list has six votes. Only five of them are candidates to do something because Balad is an extreme far-right Palestinian party. But the problem is that if you have those votes, you will pay on the other hand of the coalition with votes of right-wingers from Bennett and Saar's parties who are not satisfied. It's quite hard. It, it's, it's hard enough these days with Ram, with Mansour Abbas that condemned every terrorist attack without the, the need in uh, Ahmed Tibi, uh, Yasser Arafat's former uh, uh, advisor and, and the Ofer Kassif that thinks that Russia is the good guy in the conflict with Ukraine. I, I want to go back to talking about Netanyahu. I want to be that editor of The Guardian <laughs> that Jonathan calls in and I can yell at him and say, tell me about Netanyahu. So I want to ask something, which is, we put out, you published this poll, we p- published a poll yesterday that said that Netanyahu leads the Likud, that Likud will have 35 seats. That's more yep. than a quarter of the seats in the Knesset. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's very clear that if he just leaves the political arena, mm-hmm. they can say, the Likud can, I don't know, put out every, anyone and he could be the prime minister in five minutes, right? Because people who object to Netanyahu object to him personally because of corruption, because mm-hmm. of cult of personality, whatever they have against him. So is he at this point more a liability or more an asset to the Likud? Uh, it, it might be the most difficult question Um in Israel's political history, because it, it's it's to be or not to be, as Shakespeare, I don't know if you know him, <laughs> once wrote. Uh, <laughs> um, a, a very young talent. Um, why? Netanyahu has, Netanyahu is a leader that does not belong to the 21st century, but to, Israel's, to Israel in the 20th century, to parties that had a lot of seats, a lot of support. Um, of 35, 40 seats. But those was, were the days where when you went to the supermarket, the Warren supermarkets, to the groceries, you could find only two kinds of cheeses, 3% or 5%. And that was the era in which you chose basically between two parties, Likud and the Labour Party. Nowadays, mm-hmm. when there are hundreds of cheeses and milk products, 
it's quite uh, even from a cultural perspective you you become even a, a sophisticated consumer of politics you want your very specific party it, it happens mm-hmm. even in the UK over the last decade although you know in a very slow fashion slower slower than Israel so when Bibi leaves it's quite sure that people will cease to vote to Likud on such a scale so Likud mm-hmm. has to pay the price of dramatically shrinking in order to have the option to have a coalition so the mm-hmm. right wing will benefit from Netanyahu's leaving for Netanyahu's departure but the Likud will lose that's the it's amazing it, it means the answer to Yoni's brilliant question is actually both I mean he's he's electorally an asset but in parliamentary terms a liability which is a really unusual sort of exactly. situation I, I think just the way you've explained it I, I mean the I want to put to you this sort of thought, which is not wholly from me, which is there was a good piece that appeared in The Atlantic uh, a week ago from Yair Rosenberg, who was talking about the wave of terror attacks. And he said, you know, this time the story may have a different ending. And he said that normally the story is the terror attacks happen and then the politicians uh, mobilize people around that. They say Arab terror is coming and, they, and Netanyahu particularly very adept at turning people against their fellow citizens, Arab citizens. And he, and he, uh, Rosenberg wrote that this coalition is doing it differently. And he mentioned Mansour Abbas from the Ram Party and how he had condemned the attacks. But he noticed how Lapid mm-hmm. and Bennett, in, certainly in their later statements, talked about terror attackers against all of us and didn't say Arab terror attack. Just said these terrorists so, so- are trying to attack us. What I wanted to ask was, if this government is unraveling, okay. Does it mean mm-hmm. that that whole approach, which was only a few months old, it's a very new thing, which says that, you know, we're all united as citizens of Israel and the terrorists are this tiny minority who want to divide us. Is that politics going to go as well if this coalition falls apart? So I, I beg to differ because I, I think the, the, the title, co- a coalition of change, arises the question, what is the change? I mean, for instance, when Donald Trump actually inherited Barack Obama, there was a reason for people uh, from the Democratic Party to be quite devastated because they saw how he's control zing every single ch- every single change of Barack Obama. And when Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, he actually took the 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 ship to a totally different direction. By the way, when I was a child in a settlement in 1992 and uh, Rabin was elected, we were horrified, but we knew why. Because we knew Rabin is about to talk to the Palestinians, to stop building a settlement, etc. Now, the right wing is in rubbles. They, they reduced themselves to tears since uh, June 13th. But tell me something, Jonathan. What is the change? I mean, when it comes to Iran, it's the same policy. When it comes to the Palestinians, there is no annexation nor um, uh, evacuation. When it comes to the Americans, so they try to do it nicely, but still the Prime Minister of Israel says that he opposes the, the Iran deal. Uh, when it comes to um, Putin, we still keep this, this problematic position towards them. So what is the change? So it's about, okay, I know Sarah Netanyahu left Balfour. Okay, it's a very dramatic change. But, but when it comes to ideology, I don't know. I, I heard Naftali Bennett speaking about this, the, the words, an Arabic terror. 
Um, and I think Mansour Abbas would have condemned the terror attacks even if he was in the opposition to Netanyahu's government. So I, I, I'm not sure there is something that we should fear is about to vanish if the government collapses. I'll tell you what the change is, though. What I think the answer to the question is, you're right about policy. Nothing has changed. No one has erased the, the, the Netanyahu policy. But you really had the most diverse, maybe it's just about looks, maybe it's just optics. You mm-hmm. had the most diverse coalition, you still have it, the most mm-hmm. diverse coalition in the history of Israel. And, and when Naftali Bennett talked, I think it was in an interview he gave you, he said, it, he called it an experiment, right? Mm-hmm. You're taking the far left, you're taking the far right, you're taking an Arab party and you're mixing them all together. And, and you then hope the will, lab exploded. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that is the change, I think, that, that they tried to bring, obviously, probably not a success. And we'll talk about it in six months and we'll say, okay, maybe you can't have this kind of government yep. in this country. But oh. that is, I think, what they tried to do when they called it. So change, it's a, no? okay. So so maybe it's it's something different. It's not about the actions, but about what politics is about. For instance, mm-hmm. I, I mean, when we talk about right and left, it's it's like um, it's like HP. Okay, when Jonathan, when we speak about HP, we speak about printers, right? When you speak about HP, it's about a disgusting sauce <laughs> that tastes like. Uh, printer's ink. But we speak about... This may be our first things. big disagreement, now, Amit. I feel we, we, we were oh, getting on yes, so well. Yes. And we now may have to fall out. Yeah, and, <laughs> I'm an HP sauce survivor for my year in London. Anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway, That's why we, you ran away. Now we know why you left. Exactly. When, we, when you speak about right and left, and we in Israel speak about right and left, we speak about totally different things. In the UK, it's about taxation, uh, social justice, a European Union, etc. In Israel, it's usually about security, settlements, etc. But now, here's the thing. I think that the old right and left is dead in Israel. And it's dead not because the Palestinians are not here anymore, but because a vast majority of Israel's citizens and parties alike believes in Netanyahu's ideas. Now, Netanyahu is the first leader in the world's history, in my opinion, that loses election, not because people stopped believing in his idea, but when 70% of the public opinion support his ideas. I mean, the new government offers basically the same thing. It's very interesting this, because one of the thoughts I had was maybe, well, I was going to ask you at least, if it does go to an election, do the parties who were involved in this coalition get any credit from the voters not for ideological sentiment reasons, but because, as it were, the the, the wheels have turned, the system has worked. You know, I was very struck by the fact the government did get its budget yep. through. There is a kind of good governance theme about this administration. Yes. And I just wondered if, if, I mean, you've told us the Yamina party is going to be a, a, a pop trivia question in a few years' time, but <laughs> do the other participants, or even Bennett himself personally, perhaps in some new form- formulation, get any credit because for once Israeli politics wasn't an hourly headache, but instead actually was quite efficient and sort of got on with things and did things in a quite smooth way. Do any of the parties get credit for that? Or no, the votes go to mm-hmm. whoever gets the kind of blood boiling. So so actually, it's there is a huge turmoil in Bennett's um, office between his political side that claims that Bennett failed because he adjusted a center, maybe center-left policies and uh, terminology. And the other side that claims that, no, he failed because he he actually stopped functioning politically. And I think the answer is no and no, respectively. 
I think the problem is that the, the, the Bennett's tragedy is that the people who support his government are not supporting him personally. And the people that, support, that supported him personally are not supporting his government. So no one can actually vote for him. Because if you're satisfied with the government, you still have your parties that you voted for in the, in, in the cabinet. You can actually vote for them. You don't need the substitute. Um, and, and, and if you are in the opposition, there is no reason you'll vote him because it's, it's, it's like a nightmare for you. Um, so, so that's the problem of, of Bennett. I, I don't think he could have changed it. I think it would be much better for him if he knew that or he would get adjusted to the idea that he will not be here a day after August 27th, 2023, the day that he's supposed to 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 give uh, the the prime minister office to they the give the kids yeah, the, to the air lapid. But he was hoping at least to get to that finish like, line. Which like probably- each and every prime minister, you know, <laughs> there is a there is a not a joke. Uh, the difference between uh, human beings and and monkeys, dogs, and and I don't know, and, and insects is the fact that we know we are about to die one day. That's that's our advantage. That's our difference from other. I don't know mammals. Bennett is the new is the is the new human being prime minister in Israel because he's the only one that know he will not be here mm-hmm. forever. I mean, Joe Biden knows the date he leaves office. Yeah. Netanyahu didn't didn't know it and hoped it will never come. <laughs> and Ben Gurion and Golda and Eshkol, everyone. So I thought it, it's it's a nice experiment to see a prime minister that know his expiry date. But unfortunately for him, he thought he can actually manage. He can, he can, he can actually survive. And that's why he, I think he missed an important part of his tenure. Uh, Amit, I think it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you so much for coming on Unholy. Thank you very much. So Naftali Bennett uh, had wanted to be the big figure on the world stage because of this huge crisis, uh, Russia and Ukraine. And of course, no matter what's going on inside Israel, that crisis uh, not only goes on, it's sort of deepened uh, in a major way since you and I last spoke, which is the discovery or revelation, really, of really appalling and really horrifying war crimes, um, Russia, Russian troops withdrawing from the town of Bucha, to reveal this site of just streets strewn with corpses, their hands uh, tied and bound behind their back, and world outrage reaching a new pitch, a new round of sanctions being proposed and being implemented from uh, Europe and uh, and other governments. And meanwhile, there's this really sort of odd um, subplot, which you know Bennett was part of, which is coming from Volodymyr Zelensky. And this idea that he just can't rest until he gets Israel off this fence uh, of neutrality mm-hmm. between Russia and Ukraine. And it sort of seems to just, you know, scratch at him. It's sort of like it's an itch, which he ra- rather, uh, that he just needs to scratch. That he, he's got all these hundreds of scores of countries supporting him. And yet he keeps going back to the Israel thing. Uh, and just, I think, since we last spoke, made these fascinating remarks, not to foreign reporters, but to Ukrainian reporters saying, you know, after the war, we're going to be a big Israel with a different face, big meaning geographically big, 
Israel, because in the country we're going to be afterwards, security is going to be our number one issue, just like Israel. And I think, he says, when you go into supermarkets or cinemas, there's going to be members of the armed forces there with weapons, uh, just like Israel. It's it's, It's fascinating to me how much Israel is on this guy's mind. Yeah, you know, first of all, I mean, I'm glad that when he said we're going to become the big Israel, he didn't mean he wants to emulate our political system. Uh-huh. Like he just meant the security issue, which yes. is important. Um, and 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 again, and he went on to say, you know, what, what you quoted, right? That we will have to because we will be after this thinking about the days after the the war with Russia. We'll have to keep our security. We'll have to be vigilant, and you'll have soldier, soldiers in supermarkets and people walking around with weapons. He also said he 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 continued this thought and said, you know, we're we're going to be obviously a democracy, but not liberal, not European. Very interesting uh, remarks that all sort of lead to us thinking, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, this is kind of an Israel obsession. He refers to Israel, he talks about Israel. I think the most important line about Zelensky's relationship to Israel is actually something that was uh, uttered by the uh, Israeli, the, the ambassador here, the Ukrainian ambassador in Israel, Yevgen Kolnichuk, and he said he had this line in which he said, he has high expectations of Israel more than Israel can provide, which I think is a is really a poignant thing to say. I think maybe there are other Jews in diaspora who have I, expectations I, I, of Israel that Israel can provide. But that is, you know, and he's looking at every aspect of what is going on here, and he's disappointed, and he keeps saying in every way possible that he I, is... I thought that line from the ambassador, I saw it, I thought it was such an interesting line, because it's almost sort of, it's a kind of poetic reflection. It's a, it's psychological. It's yeah. not the sort of thing a diplomat would normally say. He has expectations which will never, ever be met, meaning because they can't be. He's got such high hopes. Uh for Israel. Uh, you know, new light was shed on this for me when one of our colleagues discovered that uh, that Vlad- Volodymyr Zelensky and, and his group, his troop really, of colleagues uh, in his TV production company, his kind of comedy troupe, did repeat concerts in Israel every year, I think since 2013, right up until he was elected mm-hmm. uh, president. He would come to Israel and perform apparently sellout shows in cities with big Russian speaking or Ukrainian speaking, maybe both populations. So in, in the likes of Haifa, Tel Aviv, Ashdod, other places, he would put, you know, this, he kept coming back year after year. He obviously just has this country in his mind. And I wondered if the diplomat there was sort of saying, look, in a way, he's a classic diaspora Jew. He has these unrealistic hopes, this idealistic uh, sort of faith in Israel, and he keeps on wanting it to live up to those dreams. The other thing in that interview, yeah. though, that did unnerve me a little bit was the bit you quoted, which is it won't be a liberal European. I thought the, the benign reading of that is, um, look, we're not going to be Sweden. You know, we're not going to be Switzerland, this sort of calm, peaceful country, because we've got this big bear of a neighbour. That would be fine. Mm-hmm. But the use of the word liberal troubled me a little bit, because the other person who says that Elect, re-elected just last week is Viktor Orban, of course, who says we're this new thing, a, an illiberal democracy. And for Zelensky to go out of his way to say we're not going to be a liberal democracy, you know, it may have been, there may be something lost in translation there. Maybe he meant we're not yeah. just going to, it's not going to be Paris here. Maybe that's what he meant. Yeah. But it, it just, I, I sort of put a mental pin in that and to sort of, yeah. Asterix there. Actually, read it the, the the way you described the Switzerland. I think he actually gave a Switzerland example as well in what he said. That's why I read it didn't it didn't sort of 
uh, have right, that did uh, that. glaring yeah. red light that you're talking talking about. But I think, you know, I'm going back to that, what the ambassador said, you called it poetic. And I, I, I don't know why, but it threw me to this beautiful line of, of Amos Oz in A Tale of Love and Darkness, where he says, Israel is like a dream realized, it's always going to disappoint you. And he's talking so much about that disappointment. And you see, you know, this is a man, the Ukrainian ambassador, who would sit in front of Israeli journalists every day and he would sit with his helmet and a flak jacket and say, why aren't Israel, why isn't Israel giving us what we're asking for? You know, and why is Israel closing the door to refugees? He, he's very, he's fiercely critical of, of the way Israel is acting. And let's remember, Jonathan, we've talked about this a lot, about the Israelis sort of walking this tightrope and being on the fence because it's afraid of Russia, etc. Look, this is becoming an untenable position. We've been talking about this for a while. Ehud Barak was talking about how it's grave, it's a grave mistake that Israel isn't being more uh, clear in its alliances with the United States and with Ukraine. You see it in the responses to the Bucha uh, uh, massacre. What, you know, you, you read what uh, Naftali Ben has been saying, what Yara Lapid is saying. It looks like there's an sort of a virtual entity, maybe from outer space, who committed these crimes. They don't say the word Russia when they condemn what has been going on. If you ask me what, what is happening here, I don't think it's only the sort of real politique of being afraid of Russia being on the Syrian border and what it can do. I think that something that Israel, because everyone is so preoccupied with the political situation, the, the security situation, no one is, has the bandwidth to just sit down and say, guys, we got to pivot. We got to change our direction. We got to do something that is more pro-Ukrainian. Um, I mean, I attribute it to, to malpractice more than to malice, but maybe that's too generous. It is quite it. generous that because I know what you mean, the sort of bandwidth, because <laughs> to, to, it's easier. My old politics tutor used to say, you know, what's the policy on the file? And that tends to be what people do. You know, officials <laughs> tell you this is what we've always done. And so you follow it. On this, I'm not so sure mm -hmm. because this is such a new situation since February 24th with um, an invasion. There should be a kind of gut instinct. And as Ehud Barak said last week, there is a moral uh, reaction you have to have to this. And so, and, yeah. and also the fact that, for example, Yair Lapid does say it and does say Russia, but mm -hmm. the Prime Minister Naftali Bennett doesn't, that looks to me like a worked out it's, it's a, a coordinated thing, you right. please the people who want us to mm -hmm. say this but at least it won't be the head of government saying it that feels coordinated so there's enough bandwidth to work that out there'd be enough bandwidth to work out a pivot if they wanted to do it but uh, uh, for some reason for the well we've talked about it so often we know the strategic reasons um but yeah i think time is running out on that a bit and i think internationally people will be mm -hmm. looking to the extent they look at what new formation comes out of this current political crisis in Israel and just be wondering, is there going to be a shift on that? I have to say that Zelensky's own neediness on this issue reminds me a little bit of something I remember when I was covering the then emerging rising star governor, Bill Clinton, and people said about him, you've got to, what you've got to know about Bill Clinton is if he walks into a party where there are 30 people in the room and 29 of them fall over themselves worshipping at his feet, saying he is the greatest thing they've ever seen in the history of American politics, he will spend all night on the 30th working that person until they've <laughs> joined, come over. Yeah. And there's something a, a bit about that, it seems to me, in the in, in the uh, Zelensky constant uh, appeal to Israel. It's obviously partly coming from, chiefly, I think, coming from himself and what he feels about the country. It's just a very interesting little subplot in this whole story. Um, we should hand out some awards. And I think you have a we very should. choice nominee for chutzpah. 
Uh, actually, it does tie into the Ukrainian story, I'm just okay. saying. Um, look, it, it's a story that made a big splash in Israel this week. It did travel beyond, but I think it's important because it does illustrate uh, something. So the story begins with a very talented uh, journalist who works on Israeli Channel 11. Her name is Hadas Greenberg. She was the first journalist this week, the first Israeli journalist, to arrive at Bucha and to report really harrowingly of what she's seeing and bringing really the, the, the truth of what is going on there to the Israeli audience. Uh, so far, so good. But a day after her reporting, there were two journalists who wrote on an internet site and really just focused on the way she looked. Now, this is a woman who has succeeded in arriving to a place that is so difficult. It's just really just a challenge to get there, to report from there, to you know be as, as professional as you can in this crazy situation. And what they had to focus on was why is she made up? Why is her makeup so done? Why is her hair done? Why is her manicure so expensive? Why did she change her clothes three times? And you're like, how is this possible? This is the year 2022. How is this legitimate to talk about a woman who is on air? I mean, obviously, if you're on air, you have to put on makeup. This is the it's like the situation here is that you can't win, right? It's either you too put on too many. It's terrible. And anyway, the only thing I'm proud about is the rest of Israeli media who just en masse attacked these people who were talking against her. And so the end of the story is she got all the praise and the accolades that she deserves and these people were kind of ostracized for what they were saying. So there are the um, winners of the Chutzpah. Yeah, Awards. I can feel the passion to which you bring to this topic, Yannick. I can't <laughs> imagine why. Um, I, no, I'm completely in agreement with you. It's inter an interesting thing about the BBC or British coverage uh, of, of the crisis. It's so many of the frontline reporters of this story have been women, uh, Lise Doucette of the BBC or Aguirre of the BBC, many others. And it's interesting. I, just hearing what you're telling me about there makes me think in some ways we've moved on a bit from that because that hasn't been, you know, of course it shouldn't be, but there hasn't been any of that uh, here. But no, that is um, outrageous and a well-deserved uh, nominee. For Mensch, I thought I would uh, nominate, it's a little bit of a competition. There's two potential uh, rivals for the award this week, but they both come out of Alaska uh, where there is an election on for the state's single House seat, seat in the House of Representatives. The, the, the contest uh, has got a lot of attention because a late and surprise entrant is one Sarah Palin, uh, former governor of the state, former vice presidential candidate, in some ways a big precursor of Trump and Trumpism, mm -hmm. um, I think. So there's a competition. There are some 48 or 50, you know, 50, I think, actually, candidates vying for this one House seat. It's got a very quirky system in Alaska. Uh, but two of the candidates, and these are my two potential uh, Mensch, we can decide who actually edges out. But one of them is a Jewish doctor. How? What's not to like, right? It's like something out of Northern Exposure. Uh, Al Gross, uh, he's runs as an independent, but has the backing of the Democrats. He's done it before, uh, sought office, um, didn't quite make it in the 2020 Senate campaign, but he's endorsed by Democrats. He's got, you know, some attack ads against him that many thought were anti-Jewish. So a lot of sympathy for a guy taking on uh, Sarah Palin and sort of Palin slash Trumpism and a Jewish doctor, as I say, what's not to like. But the reason why he's not a complete slam dunk uh, for the uh, uh, Mensch Award is that one of his competitors is Santa Claus. <laughs> and I don't mean that metaphorically. Um, Thomas O'Connor, a uh, city councilman in the city of North Pole, Alaska, changed his name legally in 2005 to Santa Claus. So he can be Santa Claus of the North Pole 
he turns out he is an independent progressive democratic socialist who says he loves Bernie Sanders, of course, <laughs> a great Jewish politician. So, you know, you can take your choice. I think I'm going to edge it with, and give our mention award to Al Gross, but some may want honourable mention Shoot. for Santa Claus himself, both fighting the good fight and trying to stop Sarah Palin in her tracks in Alaska. That's quite a race to cover, isn't it? Okay, next time I just want you to tell the story of the doctor, the Jewish doctor from Alaska who changed his name to Santa Claus. If they could just be in one person, that would be a perfect world. That would. We need to merge Al Gross and uh, and Santa Claus. I love that he's from the North Pole, of North Pole, (laughs) that's the name of the town. Um, So yes, I think worthy winners all round. I'm going to appeal to our listeners because I think some have given us lovely ratings on the various platforms, but reviews have been fewer and further between and we could do with them because it means you go higher up on the sort of podcast thing. Um, So if on, on Apple, certainly. So give us a review if you enjoy it because that means more people will get to see and hear our podcast. Do spread the word. We shall say our thank yous to um, Rom Atik, Omer Primat, Irad Eshel for original music. Uh, Jonathan, have a great Pesach. You're not going to be rifling through my bag to make sure there's no chametz. I mean, that is such an only in Israel thing. I still can't get over it. Um, Yes, no rifling through the bags. We will be a chametz-free zone. The amazing thing about that story, by the way, is that you had to explain it. I was like, yeah, that doesn't happen in other countries. Yeah, can you imagine? Right? It's true. You don't don't do that in other countries. Very strange. Quite true. That is not normal standard operating procedure when you enter a public (laughs) building in Britain. Uh, nevertheless, Pesach Passover is upon us. We shall have a special treat for you for the Pesach Passover period. So do listen to that. And Yonit Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. <laughs>